Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Sarah Keane. Sarah is a rancher, conservationist, wife, and mother of two who lives and works on her family's 55,000-acre cattle ranch in southern Arizona's Altar Valley. The King's Anvil Ranch was established in 1895 and has operated successfully within their family for generations, setting an example of how to run a financially viable agricultural business while simultaneously protecting the long-term ecological health of their vast desert ranch. The Kings understand that in order for their business to thrive, the land must thrive, and they are leaders in pursuing a variety of outside-the-box stewardship techniques, including the focused use of prescribed fires. The King family spearheaded the creation of the Altar Valley Conservation Alliance, a cutting-edge land conservation organization that collaborates with a wide range of stakeholders, including private landowners, ranchers, government entities, conservation nonprofits, and environmental advocacy groups. Thanks to focused, diligent efforts over the course of two decades, the Alliance has managed to bring together groups that have historically been at odds, allowing them to focus on shared goals and creative solutions to complicated challenges, rather than dwelling on their differences. As you'll hear Sarah explain, the Alliance understands that open, honest, face-to-face communication has been the key to tackling the Altar Valley's complex challenges, and their success gives me hope that other organizations throughout the West can adopt their approach and enjoy the same success. This was a very enlightening episode for me because I personally just don't know enough about the landscapes and heritage of the Deep Southwest. We dig into many of the details of the King's Anvil Ranch and its operation, including the unique climate and ecology of the Arizona desert. Sarah explains how the Alliance came to be and offers some insights into exactly what they do and how they've managed to have such success. We discuss Sarah's personal background, specifically how an East Coast native ended up on an expansive cattle ranch in Arizona. We talk about the benefits of raising children on a ranch and the lesson she hopes to impart as they grow up so closely connected to the land. Given that the ranch is located less than 40 miles from the Mexico border, we discuss how illegal border crossings have had a significant effect on the ranch's operations. And of course, we discuss favorite books and documentaries with links to everything in the episode notes. I had such a great time chatting with Sarah, and I walked away from the conversation with a much deeper understanding of ranching, conservation, and life in the American Southwest. She and her colleagues at the Alliance are doing important, groundbreaking conservation work, so I encourage you to follow them and learn from their efforts. Also, be sure to follow Sarah on Instagram. On top of everything else, she's an extremely talented photographer. Hope you enjoy. When you meet somebody for the first time, and they ask you that question, what do you do? How do you answer that? Well, um, I try to to kind of lead with the ranch. Of We've got a, a cattle ranch, and then I usually mention that I work for the local conservation alliance and that I've got two children running around in the mix, too. Those are That's four full-time jobs, two kids and then two other jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yep, just on the on the loose all the time. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, I, I want to dig into every bit of that, and I think maybe the first the first part of that we can dig into is the ranch. Um, I know your yep. your family's ranch has been around for a very very long time, and uh, so could you just talk a little bit about about your ranch, the operation, the history of it? Yep. Um, so I married into the ranch. My husband's family's been on the ranch since 1895. And we're a cow-calf operation that's located southwest of Tucson. We're about an hour outside the city, so really pretty close in terms of open country and ranches. And um, that's pretty close to a a major city. Um, The ranch supports my in-laws, who are still here and working every day. Um, And then my husband and I, and we've got two kids, and then we've got two cowboys right now working for us. Um, and the ranch is in Pima County, and it located in the Altar Valley, which is a watershed that's about 600,000 acres. Wow. 
So 1895, do you, I'm sure you guys know a ton about the, the history and where your, your husband's ancestors came from. What, what's the story there? How, how did people end up in the middle, what was the middle of nowhere, Arizona in yep. 1895? So it was his great grandfather and he was rumored to be, he was from California and rumored to be moving away from a stepmother that he didn't love. Um, and whether or not that's totally true will be probably a little bit lost in history. But it's that's a good story. Kind of, um, and so he came down with a cattle company and was working in the valley. And uh, about 1885 is when he came down to the valley and worked for a cattle company. And then they were being hit by drought and so got bought out and um, the all the guys got paid in cattle. So then he had this had the cattle. I don't know exactly how many it was, um, but that's kind of how his operation got started. And then he went around the valley and kind of secured a bunch of different little homesteads. His original one was actually up. Our headquarters are down lower in the valley. And then there's a mountain um, headquarters called Verdondo. And that was his original one up there. And then he got the home, what we call the home headquarters, um, a little bit later. And so he kind of spread pretty far reaching throughout the valley and what we run on now today is actually a smaller portion of what he ultimately had at the time. So did he secure his first parcel or the first portion of the ranch through the Homestead Act or, or did he purchase it outright? You know, I don't know that I've ever asked that question specifically. Um, yeah, I don't know the answer I just, to that. I don't know. I should, but I just don't know enough about the history, the specific history of the Homestead Act right. and the dates and all that kind of stuff. Cause I know that some ranchers, you know, that's how they got started and then they acquired other land. But either way, right. he had to acquire a lot of land to put together a, yeah. a, a property like you guys. So how how big is the – how many acres is your place? The Anvil is about 50,000 acres. 50,000. And is that all deeded or is it a combination of deeded and, and public land? It's a combination. Um, there's deeded land and then there's a lot of state land. And we have a little corner of BLM, but it's not much like you hear some folks who have a lot of BLM. Um, so mostly when we are interacting with other agencies and, and other folks, it's over state land. Got it. And so just because we've got a, a wide range of people that listen to this podcast, can you explain cow-calf operation just so, sure. so people who aren't in the ranching world can get an idea of what that means? Yep. Um, so basically what we're doing is we're raising mother cows um, and then they have babies and we've got bulls and it's like 20, 25 um, cows for one bull. So then we've got bulls that we put out on the cows. They have their babies um, and then we'll wean the babies usually in the fall um, and take them to usually the local auction and then sell them. And that's kind of how we how the business runs. Um, and sometimes the heifers the the baby girls um we'll keep a bunch of those on the ranch then as replacement heifers and then we bring in new outside blood of bulls and so that way you're not getting genetic funkiness in there sure uh, sure, to, sure to use a real technical term yeah <laughs> um that's about my level of, of technical terms there um, so you know the first thing people think of when they think of arizona is desert and dry so um, and you know, the, the whole West is relatively dry compared to the rest of the country, but that Arizona is, is, you know, the driest. How much rainfall do you get there in a, in an average year? Oh, it kind of depends on what part of the ranch, but 15 inches is on the okay. higher end. That's better than I would have, that's more than I would have thought. So yeah, depends on that. That would be the optimist normal um i think we've been officially in drought for the last at least 10 years so that is not what we've been getting steadily it's it's more in the 10 range or so okay got it and so how many how many cows can you run on the ranch um we're rated for probably about 500 or so we tend to run lower than that though just so we don't get ourselves in any pinches got it all right, cool. Thanks. I, you know, being in the in the ranch business, I always love the kind of the the real detailed parts about that. Mm -hmm. but I'll 
in case other people aren't as interested, I'll <laughs> keep keep it moving here. Um, so one of the, the one of the ways that we connected was through your work um, in in land conservation, and yeah. that particular area seems to really be doing some some cutting edge um, conservation that uh, includes private landowners and public land, and it is bringing in people and is considering the ecological aspects, and it it's really hitting on all the the important. Um, I guess, kind of parts of, of life in the West. And so that was one of the things I really wanted to, to hear about what you guys have going on down there. So um, could you just talk a little bit about the, the history of the Altar Valley Conservation Alliance, how that started? Sure. Um, so the alliance got going in about 1995, and we have to give a big hat tip to the Malpai Borderlands Group, which are east of us um, in the Douglas area, if anybody's familiar with Arizona. Um, and... At that point, again, as the, the local legend goes, my father-in-law and our neighbor to the south were chatting things over and had heard of what Malpai was working on and thought it was a good idea for our area and um, proposed it then to their wives as this great idea that they had that their wives should really take with and, and run on. Um, so really it was Pat and Mary who spearheaded the whole deal, getting it off the ground and got local neighbors together and um, had the Malpai folks over to kind of talk about what they had going on over there. And and this, I should also add, was long before my time on the scene, so I can't take any credit for getting any of this started. Um, but they got things off the ground. And, and to kind of give you a picture of what it was like in 1995, um, Tucson was booming with development. There was a lot of... Um, kind of grumpiness between environmental groups and ranchers and pretty contentious. And um, so this idea kind of sprung out of how do we work together? How do we work for the land? How do we view the land as a whole watershed rather than each little pieces and parts, you know, of either ranches being the boundaries or state land being the boundaries or um, we have a national wildlife life refuge, the Buenos Aires National Wildlife Refuge in the south part of the valley. So there's any number of ways that you can split the valley up. Um, and the bottom line and how we think of it is that the land doesn't really care about the lines that you either draw on the map or you put in the fence line. So the whole idea of the alliance kind of sprang out of looking to conserve the, the Altar Valley for future generations and to do that really viewing the valley as a whole. Got it. And so just to summarize in my head, so it, it, basically all the all the major landowners there in this six hundred thousand acre watershed decided to come together and kind yep. of bring their efforts together to to come up with some s solutions that not only work for the ranchers but that could bring in some of the environmental voices that had had historically, I guess, been adversarial. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Yep, I would say that's a pretty a good short and sweet summary on it. So was there uh, a specific event that led to you guys deciding, all right, we need to do this? Or was it just kind of observing the, the other groups or the Malpai Borderlands group and, and seeing what they'd done? I mean, was it more of a – was it a, a response to an event or was it just kind of an organic idea that kind of took hold and grew? Mm -hmm. um, so – Prescribed fire and erosion control are kind of the two things that the Alliance was founded around. And in that sense, there's a big wash called the Altar Wash that runs through the middle of the valley. And I guess it's sort of a unique Arizona thing. A, people may not know what a wash is, but it's basically a dry riverbed. Um, we don't have a river that runs through all the time. But there is this channel that used to be an old wagon road. Um, that got carved out by a flood in the early 1900s. And as the century's gone on, as the water's run through, it's kind of cut this channel down. And there's concern about how that's moving water through the valley and, and pulling it out of um, the uplands. And so that was one piece of things, that there was a lot of concern um, over getting this wash fixed. 
And then also returning prescribed fire to the landscape. And my in-laws had been involved heavily in the 1980s at returning prescribed fire to, to the landscape and had done some prescribed burns. And I guess to get a, a little bit of the changes that have happened over time, um, they actually conducted their own prescribed burns at the time and burned the black perimeter and then burned the interior um, you know, they'd let the local fire department know, et cetera. But there's a great picture of my brother-in-law, who must have been like nine at the time, um, sort of with this, it was either a young, long yucca stalk um, on the edge of the fire. And it looks like he's pushing his father in towards the fire, as you see, all these <laughs> burning flames. And, and there's there's no, you know, big gear or anything um, like you'd see, you know, modern firefighters kind of wearing. So, and that was the 80s. That's not that long ago. So after kind of getting prescribed fire off the ground in the 80s, it got a little bit stymied in the 1990s as um, there was a Pima pineapple cactus that's out in some part of the valley um, and it's on the Endangered Species Act list. And they determined that fire, they didn't know what the effects of fire were on this plant and so kind of shut down burning um, over concerned for this plant. So those two things, really, fire and erosion control, were where the alliance grew out of. And I think folks were frustrated. The ranchers were frustrated on the ground at not being able to to get at some of the stuff and wading through um, kind of bureaucracy and rules and regulation. And the idea behind the alliance, you know, generated out of that as a way to be a collective voice to work together through all these common issues that everybody was facing, and to be um, kind of a seat at the table, basically. Sure. So can you talk a little bit about the fire and why that's important? I know in some of the information that you sent me that I was reading, it, it sounds like fire is a natural part. Well, I mean, it is of the whole West. Um, we could we could really expand this talk about fire if we wanted to. But in, in your area, can you just talk about how fire played a role in history before even before settlement of the valley by you know, white people? Sure. Um so, like you were saying, throughout the whole West, fire was a huge part of the landscape, and a lot of what we're seeing now um, in terms of fire, especially right now the wildfires in California, the stuff that burned um, in Montana, and then actually early in fire season this past summer, kind of May, June, Arizona was pretty much on fire everywhere. Um, and so prescribed fire was part of, or I'm sorry, not prescribed fire, but wildfire was part of the ecosystem and would go through. And in the early 1900s, the rise of Smokey the Bear and, you know, preventing forest fires came about throughout the whole West. Um, and with that then came in a lot of heavy growth. And and even without that campaign, campaign just the general, um, you know, having folks living in the area concern for houses, um, you'd get less, you know, burning through of things. And for us in our area, that's meant that there's a lot more mesquite that's growing in the valley. Um, and there's then less grasslands and open country. Um, that's a change from the early 1900s when folks first came in. Yeah, that makes sense. And for people who want to learn more about that, there's a great book called The Big Burn. Um, it's mm-hmm. by Timothy Egan, I think, and it gives the history of the National Forest Service and how this there was this massive wildfire out west, and which uh, created it, it killed a lot of people, and it was very big, and and uh, you know just went through maybe several hundred thousand acres. But that as a result of that, the National Forest Service made it their mission to try to have zero wildfires, and that which still, makes sense, you know, if you're seeing the. A quick cause and response. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of see what they were thinking, thing. but it's funny, you know, now a hundred years later, you're seeing the effects of it. And then there's also a Ted talk that I can link to. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's probably 10 minutes. And it's a guy talking about why uh, we need to have more prescribed fires um, because. Yeah, it, yeah it, I'd love to see that. Yeah. So I'll put links to both of those. Um, so, you know, wh- when you when your in laws started doing this burning in the eighties, were they was that something that was just kind of seen as crazy, or did everybody kind of get what they were doing? I think they were cutting edge. I don't think everybody thought they were totally out there, um, but it was certainly you know newer to be going at it and and to be actually conducting the prescribed burns. 
Um, but I think they felt like they had really good success with it. And they worked closely with NRCS, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, um, to to pick the areas and, you know, it wasn't, they weren't just out there with matches being pyros. It was <laughs> very well thought out. I sure. Clear um, so can you talk a little bit about some of the projects, maybe an example or two of projects that y'all worked on in the last few years that have brought in all these different stakeholders? So, you know, you've got, you've obviously got the public land component, state, state land component. And then I know we had emailed that, that we knew some people that, uh, that work on the national level that have come down there. We have mutual friends who do that. And so can you just give us an example of, of maybe just a, a good case study and something you guys have done that's been a real win-win for, for everybody? Sure. Um, there's probably two things that come to mind. The first would be grants that we've gotten from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. And the first grant involved a grant to pick five sites to um, conduct prescribed burns on, and actually I should back up and say really plan prescribed burns on because there's so many variables that go into conducting the burns, um, chief of them being weather. And so we picked five different sites throughout the valley, um, and they involved five different ranches and state land within some of those, private land within some of those, um, I think a little corner of BLM on one of them, a lot of BLM on another so a, a pretty broad range of things. And the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation was great in that they said that they understood that we may not complete the grant in that sense um, of ever actually doing these burns, but that this grant was specifically designed to do the planning for them. Mm-hmm. And then we got a second um, grant from them that was to actually conduct all the burns at those five sites plus add erosion control measures to some of them. So if there were roads that needed to be shored up, um, you know, just little dirt roads in ranch dirt roads that either we're going to need, you know, heavy equipment, fire trucks to be able to get in on them to do repairs and maintenance on them prior to the burn. And then also look at any areas that once um, vegetation was burned off for a short stretch, you know, that over the, we get a lot of our rains in the summer through monsoon season. So you picture Arizona as being very, very dry, but then we'll get these torrential rains in the monsoons that come through and, mm-hmm. and there'll be a ton of flooding and that can cause a lot of erosion. And so it was looking to be proactive on those five sites. And then in that grant also included money for two new sites to pick, um, to do the burn plans, then plus the potential erosion control, and then do the burning. And so with that, we have completed, I think it's, we completed one burn in the summer of 2014, and then there was another smaller one um, last winter. And we're working on two of them that are on state and private land, potentially for this summer. They were kind of ready to go uh, last summer, but then we had that wild wildfire season in May and June. So that really, all the fire resources in Arizona were really stretched then. Um, so that, you know, with that, there's stuff that we've done actually on the ground, but the biggest thing that's come out of that grant and out of is a, a short and sweet presentation of what the Alliance really does is to bring all the stakeholders to the table for a lot of very not glamorous meetings um, in conference rooms. And sometimes if we can swing it, we'll get out on the land and um, do site visits and that kind of thing. But a lot of it is really just meetings face to face, a lot of email, um, you know, talking to people about ways to problem solve, um, solve, you know, limitations, work together and Particularly, we've ended up doing a winter fire meeting and then a spring fire meeting. And the winter fire meeting really focuses on kind of wrap up of wildfire season. Were there things that went right or wrong? Um, And then going into potentially what we can do with our prescribed burns. And then the spring meeting kind of gets ready to launch into wildfire season and potentially conducting any of the burns. But it's amazing. It's usually about 30 people from... Um, Department of Forestry and Fire Management, state land, NRCS, private landholders, Pima County. Um, I'm positive I'm forgetting people, but um, 
it's about 30 people in a room and the problem solving that happens at those two meetings each year is really amazing. You you can only fly around so many emails before some of that face-to-face time and conversations where somebody will present an issue and somebody might chime in and say, oh, you know, I think I could solve that by providing, you know, these resources or, you know, talking it through. Um, and that's really what's come out of the Alliance is really a collaborative spirit that gets it, it gets at problem solving for the land um, and really focusing on solutions rather than what the problems are. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very encouraging to hear. It's encouraging to hear on a micro scale talking about land conservation, but it's for me, it's encouraging to hear on a macro scale, just given how, first of all, yes. how uh, adversarial everything is these days and how mad everybody seems to be, and then c- combine that with how everybody wants to do everything over email or electronically. <laughs> and so I think when you can... To hear that people are talking face to face and they're looking for solutions versus arguing, um, I'm I'm happy to hear that that's happening anywhere on any subject. So, <laughs> yes, good Agreed. job. Very much so. Very much so. Uh, well, that's that one thing. I, uh, one question I had is, you know, that what you just described there sounds awesome, and I think anybody, if given the choice, would say, yeah, I want I want to be involved in something like that. But the reality is, it's extremely hard and rare to find that, at least in my experience. And so what do you think makes you guys different? I mean, how, how did you guys figure out how to crack this thing so that people can collaborate and be goal-oriented versus focusing on the, on the differences? Because I've always said that environmentalists, you know, I used to live in Boulder, and environmentalists and ranchers, you know, smart, mindful ranchers and smart, mindful environmentalists, they have a lot more in common than they have different. And and it just seems like there's so much opportunity there to to work together and, but it seems to be extremely difficult to do. So how did you guys, how did you guys figure that out? I think just a lot of, um, perseverance that might also just be known as dogged nagging people, mm-hmm. um, and sticking with it. Um, you know, I got to give a lot of credit to Mary Miller, who's our executive director and my mother-in-law, Pat King, and they have been um, volunteers. Mary's now on staff, but it was really a volunteer-based organization. And I think, in general, all the the landowners in the valley, I really should give everybody credit of seeing some of the the issues, the antagonizing that went on in in the '90s, and really being determined that they didn't want that to continue, that they wanted to be part of solutions, and then you know, believing in the concept of the Alliance and then being persistent in terms of hosting these meetings, tracking people down, following up with people, kind of trying to nail people to the wall on what they said they'd do and, um, you know, in terms of agencies and stuff and really just putting a lot of sweat equity into it and being persistent and not letting it go. Yeah, I think the the short answer would be is is, it's extremely difficult. (laughs) You know, I think think nowadays with everybody wants – thinks that there's a quick solution or a, there's a, a, a right answer and a wrong answer. But the reality is there there's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. It's somewhere in right. the middle, and it takes a ton of hard work to, to yeah. dig through. These are complicated issues. If they were simple, they, they wouldn't be problems. You know what I mean? Yep. And, I mean, we're we're 22 years into this just to make that Yeah, it wasn't an overnight, overnight thing exactly. after one or two meetings. Exactly. I mean, decades. Um, so if, if you were advising – another conservation organization because like we've talked about the Colorado Cattlemen's Land Trust and they do they they kind of operate in in a similar world that that you operate in I've interviewed Eric Glenn he was the first person I interviewed I listened to that one yep I I haven't listened I'm sure it's it's terrible because I didn't I was nervous and didn't know what I was doing but um, but anyway, it, it, uh, he's, he's great. And so, and they do great work as do so many other conservation organizations. I mean, if you had some advice to give to them, you know, based on, on your success and the success of your organization and all the local ranchers there, is there any specific kind of actionable thing you could recommend? I mean, is it the in-person meetings or, or what, what do you think has, is there a specific thing that has helped you guys really, really, um, have this level of success? I think it's maybe twofold of one. I think all that in-person face-to-face contact, um, really 
getting to know one another, you know, getting to know your agency folks. And there's really no substitution for some of that face to face stuff. And and then you can do your, you know, remote meeting where it, it's a drive to get into Tucson and it's a drive for folks to come here. So certainly use technology. But, you know, there's no substitution for knowing the people that you're working with and talking to. Um, so there's that part of things. But also, We've really found that we've had the most success when we've had tangible projects on the ground. There's plenty of stuff um, that we've solved and we've worked worked on that's you know not very flashy, um, you know planning all those fire meetings, that kind of stuff. But those have had success because we were working on real projects and a real you know our our burn on the anvil is the West Mill burn. So to be able to say here's the West Mill burn. Here's what we need to get done. Here are the problems. We need to figure out liability. We need to work on um, this Pima pineapple cactus. And to have real concrete examples, it it means that people are working on something, um, which I think means a lot to folks to, to be part of something that's succeeding. And it's also not theoretical then at that point. You're not saying, well, if we... Um, what if we had a burn and what if we needed liability, you know, what would you do then? Cause people can give the easy answer. Oh, I'm sure we'd help you, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but when you have a real project and you're putting dates on the calendar, you know, same with the erosion control stuff, um, giving people a place to meet on the land and to see what they're accomplishing and what they're a part of, I think really helps drive success and drive people's enthusiasm. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's great. Um, so just to back out a little bit and look at it from kind of a larger perspective, we I've talked about this with several different people on the podcast, but there's obviously a lot of talk these days about public lands and the importance of saving public lands for the general public. I mean, for the you know general citizen of the U.S. Um, and I think everybody, most people agree that that's important, but a lot of people don't fully understand the role that private lands play in just the overall health of, of the West. Um, and could, could you just talk a little bit, and I feel like that gets lost in the conversation, the importance yeah. of private land. And so could you just talk about like why somebody in Tucson or even why somebody in New York should, should, should care about private land in the West? Cause I think the case for public land is pretty, pretty easy to understand, yeah. but can you just talk a little bit about that? I mean, you could write a book about it. So I, I, <laughs> that's yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, so I think that one is the on-the-ground accountability. My dad's got an expression, and he's not in ranching, but in general, that if everybody is in charge, nobody's in charge. Yep. And I think that's one service, so to speak, that private landowners um, provide, is that a lot of private lands connect to public lands and um, multi-use. You know, we have hunters who come in. And if you don't have somebody actually on the land, you know, looking at um, what's going on, what people's impact are, is on the land, um, you're not going to have anybody kind of tracking the cumulative effect. And, you know, for us, an example, at one point we allowed ATV use on the ranch and it resulted in kind of everybody doing whatever they wanted, being off-road, you know, not following rules, that kind of stuff, and, and starting to damage the landscape and the ranch worked with Game and Fish um, on an access agreement, and there's still very much public access on the ranch, um, but it does not include ATV usage. And that's helped control um, keeping people from kind of literally running wild all over the ranch and, and tearing up the country. And a lot of that is, is on state land. Um, so, you know, that's one respect that um, I think sometimes gets lost is that if nobody is kind of looking out for things, um, then everybody assumes that what they're doing is fine and what they're doing is just one little piece of things. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't, you know, they don't see the whole big picture. I also think that, um, especially in our case in this valley, I obviously can't speak for everywhere, but there's a lot of long-term uh, land ownership and the historical memory that's provided is really important. And as you're working with a lot of these agencies, there's understandably a lot of agency turnover, you know, folks who come in for two years, three years, five years, 10 years. Um, and there's folks that are, you know, longer than that too, 25 years, 30. But when you compare that to the Kings being here on the anvil since 1895, that's a drop in the bucket. So to have that historical memory, to understand um, how the past was, what projects have been done, um, you know, that, that's a really valuable thing as well. 
And to have that longevity is something that, you know, an agency just, it's very hard for them to provide. Um, so those are kind of two facets that I think are, are really important um, in terms of private land in the West. Yeah. And one point I always try to hit home to people is that with, with ranchers, if they don't take care of the land, not only, you know, the, the land will, it, it, they're, they're going to go out of business. I mean, that just yeah. from a strictly economic standpoint, no, uh, nothing about ecology, nothing about feel, you know, feel any feel good aspect yeah. just from a business standpoint. And you look at any business, how many businesses are around for 120 years or whatever, like, like you're, a long time. Yeah, it's a long time in any business, much less, you know, any family business. I remember in grad school, I took a class about family business. They said something Ooh, like only 5%. Yeah, only 5% of family businesses or something like that make it to the third generation. And so not only is it a family business, but it's a very challenging business, ranching. And you guys yeah. have managed and managed to make it work for that long. And that's because you've cared for the land. If, if you didn't care yeah. for the land, it, you wouldn't still be there. And so, I mean, and, you know, you guys are – are unique in that. And there, there obviously are some ranchers who may not um, be as careful, but it, you just can't do it for as long as you guys did. And it sounds like all the other landowners in the area are similar ownership. Um, so it sounds like a really, really cool place. I, I want to come down there and see it. You should definitely. Um, so I want to hear more about you personally, and I'm sure everybody <laughs> else does. How, yeah, how did you end up out here uh, on this ranch? Um, I, started out coming as a guest to the ranch that's south of us that is a guest ranch that's been in operation down here since 1945, the Elkhorn Ranch. And I'd grown up riding horses, riding English. And <laughs> my mom had always thought having a dude ranch vacation would be a good idea. So found some places, had my dad call them up. Um, and they had space for the spring break that we had open. So out we came. Um, I think I was 10 or 11 and our, we have a middle brother who was I think eight at the time. And then my youngest brother was six. And so went out to the ranch and went down there seven mile dirt road. And I think my parents were kind of questioning their decision at that point, but showed up and were welcomed with open arms by the Miller family and had a fabulous week. And it's the type of place where a lot of people are repeat guests who come back every year. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of fell into doing that all the way through high school. And I came out um, to nanny for a couple of weeks for two summers for the kids, uh, Mary and Charlie's kids, and who actually Clara is now in college and babysitting for my kids. So <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> I'll go full circle. Um, and hopefully they're, they're doing good payback on her. Yeah. Um, anyhow, <laughs> I digress. But so then summers in college, I went and worked for their sister ranch for Charlie's sister, Linda um, in Montana. And it's also the Elkhorn ranch. It's kind of between big sky and West Yellowstone. And went out there as the babysitter and then worked into being the peanut butter mother, who's the kitty wrangler, and then worked into wrangling there and um, learned a lot of kind of just trial by fire and just sort of going at it. And then um, this is the the very long answer to this question. So I apologize. No, don't apologize. That's, what, that's why I asked. The longer okay. the better. Uh, so then came down here to work for Charlie in the barn at the Elkhorn after I graduated from college. And met Joe, my husband, um, the guy who was the barn boss at the time, was a childhood buddy of Joe's, and he'd just gotten married, so I think was scheming that everybody should be in love and married. And so introduced us, and it paid off. Yeah. <laughs> he was right. Um, so yeah, so that's how I ended up being here on the Anvil, and then kind of just fell into getting involved with the Alliance, because that's what was around to do and what people were working on and seemed like a great project to be involved in. And so I, um, I guess I joined the staff in 2011. Got it. So when you were a kid thinking about what you're going to do when you grow up, did you know, you obviously were enjoyed coming out, um, with your family and all that, but did you ever imagine that you would end up living on a ranch, being a, a rancher, uh, in the middle of, or in Southern Arizona? Definitely not. Um, <laughs> what did you study I, in college? I was a history major. Um, I went to Davidson College, which is in North Carolina. So that's, that's a great school. Thank you. Um, not anywhere close to the West, though. Definitely um, not. 
<laughs> but yeah, I was a history major. Um, I did my senior thesis on women dude ranchers in the 20s and 30s. Oh, cool. Um, so, you know, definitely very much had that interest at that point in college. Um, and especially after working in Montana, you know, that's kind of when um, ranching and livestock and that kind of stuff really entered my head as maybe that's what I'd like to stick with. And at one point I thought maybe I'd end up in some kind of guest ranching um, aspect of things, but Joe kind of screwed up all those plans, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned your, your senior thesis. Um, are there any, are there any good books on, on women dude ranchers that, that you read when you were writing that, that you would recommend or just any interesting books that, that you came across that were kind of shaped, that shaped your outlook on that subject? You know, a lot of it was obscure primary sources. Sure. Um, oh, yeah. That, you know, in um, at MSU Bozeman, there were some old documents and stuff. Um, you know, it was interesting to dive into some of the the travel history as a whole topic. You know, of, um, a lot of how people got to do ranches at the time were by taking the trains and then coming west and spending months um, out in the west and families would get dropped off and you know businessmen would go home back to the east and kind of work on stuff and then come you know back and forth um, so seeing the whole rise of travel and mobility in that stretch and then on to the 50s with you know more airplane travel and that kind of stuff that's a whole fascinating topic that could be dived into and you could spend a lot of time learning about that. I've got a book. I'm, I just pulled it off my shelf right here. It's called, my mom gave it to me. I haven't read it yet, but it's called ladies of the canyons, a league Ooh. of extraordinary women and their adventures in the American Southwest. Oh, that I sounds like something that. you'd like, huh? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I didn't, I'd, um, I'd kind of forgotten about it. And then when you started talking about that, that, that reminded me, I need to read that. Um, yes. I just, like we were talking about on the phone before, uh, yesterday, I just don't, I don't know as much about the Southwest as I should, and it's such an amazing place, but it's so different than, than you know, Colorado, Montana. Um, wh what was the biggest surprise when you moved down there and, and made it your home? I mean, coming from – you were from the East Coast originally. Um, was, there, was there anything – was it the cultural aspect or the landscape, or was there one specific thing that stuck out that was a, a huge surprise for you? Hmm. Good question. Um I think I had kind of cheated so much with coming out, you know, for vacation starting when I was 10 that, you know, the landscape wasn't a surprise. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed being in, to, in it. You know, I wasn't expecting things to be green. Um, I think there's a Wallace Stegner quote that's something like you have to get over everything not being green. Yeah. I'm really butchering that. Um, but that's the, the basic take home from it. And so, yeah, that, you know, that wasn't a shock. And I always liked the desert country. Um, you know, some people, if it, if it's not green and it's not piney, you know, kind of mountain West area are not as interested in the country, but it's really fascinating down here. It is that, that landscape is so harsh and it's so, um, and, and it's, but it's, it's beautiful as well, but it's, it's, it's unlike anything else in, in just the, the brief amount of time I've spent in, in that type of landscape. Um, so we both, uh, you've got two kids, I've got one and, um, they're kind of in the same general age and yep. you're raising them there on that ranch, which is obviously different than the way you grew up. Are there any lessons that you are imparting, you and your husband are imparting to your children that are completely different than, than things you learned as a kid? That's kind of, that's kind of amazing to, to think about. Um, I think you know, just growing up with livestock in your life every day is a big difference. Um, you know, and, and getting the chance to learn stock early in life, um, I think is going to be a totally different aspect. My, my older daughter has already claimed my horse, um, <laughs> which is not hers, mine, uh, <laughs> along with my purple saddle blanket. And so, you know, seeing her interaction with horses and I always liked horses as a kid as well. And, and I did grow up, you know, riding, but in a totally different capacity of, you know, going to the stable, having a lesson, that kind of stuff. And to just have, you know, the horses come into the corrals, um, by our house and be able to walk down there and look at them and go down and see the, the calves that have been weaned and are in there and, you know, talk to them. And, um, and also I think an interesting part of ranching as a kid is that, 
you kind of know what your parents do every day in a different way than I ever grew up with. Um, you know, I, I knew what my dad's field was. I knew what he, that he went to an office, but in terms of like what dad did all day, not still not totally sure. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, my mom is a teacher. And so, you know, I had more of an understanding of that because I went to school, but, um, you know, to be able to be part of the business from a young age um, and see it in action, see the daily realities, hear the conversations over the dinner table, you know, I think that's probably going to be very different for them than it was for me in terms of growing up. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Um, I, I, I can't imagine just how what a, a, a unique perspective children growing up in that in that type of atmosphere must have. And also they're probably extremely tough and a lot tougher than any other kids in the U S that's one of our goals is to not to be hard, tough, but to, you know, um, to have self-determination, to have confidence that you can do it, to, to have the, uh, willingness to try, even if you're not succeeding at first, you know, I think that especially in, this day and age, um, here I get on my soapbox, but in the age of technology, which is technology is great. I don't mean to knock that at all, but the age of instant gratification with smartphones and, um, to be able to still get outside and to still experience things and, and to not be looking for instant gratification and the easy, easy way out. That's something that I hope we're successful in imparting to them. Yes. Well, if you figure out the secret to it, let me know, because that's the same thing I want to impart to my, my girl. Um, speaking of the good part of technology, you've got a great Instagram account and you're a very Thank talented you. photographer. And I'll link to that and everybody needs to follow. Um, can you how do you get into photography? Because you're really good at it. Um, thank you. That's very nice of you. Um, I guess I've always had a little bit of a creative streak and. We would have little crafty projects going as a kid. And then high school, I took a photography course, you know, just as your, um, as one of your regular classes. And it was still film at that point we developed in the dark room. So that gave me a little bit of a basic, you know, some of the, some of the training to look for kind of thing. And then a lot of it has been, you know, having the advantage of technology, having the smartphone in your pocket. So kind of being able to snap photos, um, instantaneously, which is not, you know, the creme de la creme of photography for sure. But, you know, to have that opportunity to practice and even, even with two kids running around to be looking for things, to be thinking creatively about stuff every day. Um, that's kind of one of the, one of the good benefits of technology for me. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it, it really is. And I've, I think Instagram is such a, a great tool, especially for sharing some of these landscapes out here and, so fascinating to see what folks are up to. It really is. Um, one other question I had about your ranch that I think is unique to, to your area of the world, and I've, I don't have really any experience um, in it, but you are, I guess, about 37, 40 miles from the Mexico border. Yep. And so I know that um, the immigration and people coming over into this country, um, is it, it, you guys are on the front lines of that cause they'll, they'll come through yep. your ranch. Can you just talk a little bit about the challenges that come from the specific location of, of your property because of immigration issues? Sure. Um, so we are not directly on the border. Like you said, we're about 40 miles up Our headquarters are at least, um, but we do have people who come through the ranch who are, for the most part, walking. They've, um, to give you a little bit of a visual on the ranch, our headquarters are down in the bottom of the valley and then um, the mountain range is to the west. And so we'll have folks who've climbed through the mountains and come down. Um, and it does add a, a different dynamic to the ranch. Things have slowed down a little bit now um, from their height, kind of in the early 2000s, when you'd have the massive groups migrating across. Like and how that, many? Like how many people? Um, like 40 people in a group, 50 people in a group. And they've uh, walked 40 yeah. miles across a desert. Yep. yep. Um, also, you want to talk about tough people, and and I should be clear that in, you know in any of this conversation, folks who are making that choice and coming across clearly are not. Um, doing it for fun. They are struggling at home in Mexico or further south, wherever. Um, so they've made some kind of tough decision um, to, to make this hike, basically. 
but it does have an impact on us in terms of, you know, as you can imagine, 40 people coming through, um, even, you know, one or two now um, in smaller groups hit a fence line and they would cut it or push it down. Um, and if you've got cattle in one pasture, then they're out in another pasture. Um, and just that's a lot of man hours for us to go fix that problem, um, literally the fence or put the cattle back. Um, it also can mess with grazing rotations, you know, areas that we thought cattle were out of. You can be turning cattle out on the neighbors then. Um, whole ball of wax. Also in terms of environmental damage, there were water lines that were cut. That happens less now because it's less of the big groups, but um, you know, water that just got drained by the thousands of gallons on the ground. Do they um, cut the water? Sorry, do they cut the water yeah. line so they can they can drink it? Is that they can drink? It? Yes. Okay, and yep. then they yep. it just it just spills out and it doesn't right. They don't if you don't know it. that it's got cut, it. then you know, and and people got pretty good about going around and checking um, to make sure that there wasn't just water draining everywhere. But that's a lot of time invested in there as well. Um, you know, there are also trails that got cut in by people walking along them. And for the desert, a lot of times if you get trails, that means more erosion because the water, you know, searches out those easy channels to follow. Um, also, the volumes of trash that have been dumped are amazing. Um, there were areas where you'd get big sites that were like regular campsites where just trash upon trash upon trash, you know, waist high kind of deal. Um, but there's also just trash, backpacks, um, tuna fish cans, all kinds of stuff that have just been dumped all over the desert that's almost impossible to pick up because it's so spread out as people have, you know, spread out over the landscape that to those those big trash sites were easy for like game and fish to have, you know, a, a hunter cleanup day. Everybody come out and stand in kind of, you know, a 50 yard circle and pick up trash. But to spread across the whole desert and to get all the trash is um, probably next to impossible. Um, and for us, you know, that ecologically that's not great either, but it does impact our cattle operation. There's been a bunch of cows who've ended up stepping in a tuna can as a small calf and then wearing out the bottom and then the can works up their leg and they grow into the can and it's then, you know, this cuff, um, cutting off their circulation and growing into their leg. Um, and then for us personally, from a safety standpoint, um, it's hard to paint a clear picture of what it's like to be far outside of town and approached by someone that you don't know and who may be a fabulous person, um, but you don't know them. You're away from help and they are people who've at that point walked, you know, 40 plus miles, um, are probably pretty dehydrated, you know, depending on how things have gone and, and might be pretty desperate. Um, so you know, as people talk about border crossing being sort of a totally innocent crime, um, people just looking for work, that kind of stuff, you know, I, I certainly empathize that um, to make the decision to cross the border, you must be in a pretty bad situation in your home country. Um, but in terms of there being no impact, that's not the case for us. I can't think of a greater impact than being like if I was in your shoes and I was in my house with my daughter. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden I saw a man come stumbling onto my property that yep. seemed desperate. Yep. Um, that I can't think of anything that would be more impactful to me. There isn't, yeah. there isn't. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. I, you know, I, I think I'm guilty of this as much as anybody of having these opinions about how things should work without having firsthand knowledge on, on right. and you know, you are there dealing with that on a daily basis with children and, mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm very interested. To, uh, I, I'm glad to hear your experience in that because it it changes my perspective on on some of that because it's not theoretical for you. Right. Yep. No. It's a it's not necessarily a daily reality at this point, but you do have the daily question mark of is is somebody going to come in? Um, you know, if you're out walking, kind of keeping your head up, paying attention. Um, and it it would be I try to you know, for somebody who lives in a suburb or a city, kind of try to paint the picture of what happens if somebody, you know, like you say, walks in your yard and is creeping around your house and you know nothing about them. Um, that'd make you pretty un uncomfortable in town, but it's really uncomfortable out here where we're a little bit more of a drive for either border patrol or the sheriff. Um, and you don't know how desperate that person is. 
So what do you think the solution is? I mean, obviously it's, it's extremely, <laughs> it's extremely complicated. Just like everything we were talking about, there is no right answer because I, it seems to me if these people are willing to put their lives on the line, literally there, there's right. a chance they'll die by doing this. I mean, I run yeah. ultra marathons in fancy shoes. You know, I, right. I can run 50 miles in fancy shoes and I'm completely destroyed at the end of it. And the, the and you know, I do all this I've training and eat all this fancy people. food and all this kind of stuff. And, I can't understand how anybody could do that, and yet they they choose to do it. And so it seems like a law, you know, somebody saying or or a stricter law or something would not deter it. So I mean, what's is there an answer that you know of being there on the front lines? I I don't know is the short answer. I think though, at least through our experience through the alliance, that. Um, the standing on one side or the other and yelling at one another, basically in, in politics and stuff at the moment is not the solution. Yes. Um, yes. That it's going to take, it's going to take a lot of give and take and um, may also take some hard lines in solving problems. Um, some of the emotion might have to come out of it. Um, but that's really hard because you're dealing with people and, yeah, it's a whole hornet's nest at the moment, and it's going to take some real leadership and um, people who are really looking to solve the problem and sitting down at a table and, and hammering out solutions. Well, I think if anybody's got a, a good chance of um, doing it in that neck of the world, I mean, I think, or anybody's got a good chance of doing it, watching how you guys have handled these very adversarial issues um it, it gives me hope that that maybe one day <laughs> we can solve some maybe of these one problems. day we'll get everybody lined out yep um so i've got a bunch of quick questions that i've asked all the guests on the podcast and sure. it's been great to compare all the answers so i'd love to run through those with you real quick and then i'll let you get back to your important work um do you have any favorite books related to the west or maybe even related to your specific area of arizona there or just favorite books in general that you recommend to people Sure. Um, have you read anything by Ivan Doig? I have not. He is great and is um, writes a lot about Montana and was based in Seattle for a long time. I think he just passed away last year, um, somewhere in there. If I think last year, it was probably two years. But anyhow, um, this House of Sky was an autobiographical deal, and then Hard Earth um, – is another one and but he's got a whole series of fiction that are fabulous as well so if if you search his name out he's really writes really well about the land with people's relationship to the land um yeah really fascinating really good that's great i, I have not even heard of him so that's oh um, really that's oh yeah you should track that down because you're missing out cool um and then old classic a river runs through it mm-hmm. short Easy, um, Norman McLean, just a, another good book about people and interactions and, and how nature weaves its way in. And yeah, that's a good one. Um, and then, oh, another favorite kind of a women in Southwest is Half Broke Horses, which is Jeanette Walls. She wrote The Glass Castle, which is also a, a great book. Um, and they are both based on relatives of hers. The Half Pro Courses is about, I think it's her grandmother um, in the early 1900s who started breaking horses with her dad when she was six and all of her adventures and really, really interesting book. And it's written as kind of a narrative fiction deal. So it moves along and um, kind of a blend of fiction and nonfiction. Great. Those are awesome. And I haven't read any of them except River Runs Through It. So that's um, cool. I'll have links to those so people can can click through. Um, Do you have any favorite documentaries or films? (sighs) Goodness. Um, I like the Buck documentary just for how he talks about listening to sort of what the horse is saying. and how that works with people and the interactions of people. And, and I think especially, you know, after working with the Alliance for a while and seeing, um, seeing interactions between 
people, I think his point of thinking about how you're approaching someone and in terms of how they want to be approached is really important, both in working for animals and understanding them, um, but also in thinking about your daily people interactions. Yeah, that's, I agree. And as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, the just to reiterate, I think the key to all of the success that you guys have had in that valley and the key to solving these other problems is all people skills. I mean, it, you know, it's real easy to, to come up with a theory on paper, but the, the crux is the people skills. And it's clear that you guys really value that down there, which is why you've been successful. Yeah, it's all about personal interaction and um, thinking about less of how you want to interact and more about how you're approaching somebody and how they might want to interact, I think. Is there some weird activity you do that would be surprising to <laughs> listeners? I mean, you're, you're obviously on the ranch and you're doing the conservation work and you're chasing two kids. Is there, um, do you have anything that would be surprising? Oh, that's another good question. Um, think so i think it's all fairly well lined up i Maybe guess i'll I'm, get joe like, on the phone and ask him yeah joe <laughs> joe could probably give you a few <laughs> i'll give you the counter answer in that i guess for most people this past hour their only exposure is my voice i get a lot of questions of if i sing and i do not sing i do i could not carry a tune in the bucket really so, you, you do have yeah. a good voice you sound like you would be a good singer nope, not even close that's um my brother looked at me once as i i think i was like singing a christmas carol over his shoulder or something and looks at me and goes wow you are a worse singer than i am <laughs> okay yep that's family for you so anyway that's sort of the opposite answer but that we might share that, share that. Um, let me see oh what's the most powerful experience you've ever had in the outdoors so it could be a scary experience or uh, just a, a funny experience or a memorable experience is there one experience you've had outdoors that really stands out as just something that you'll never forget um i guess couple times being outdoors in thunderstorms and one was up in Montana and we were kind of above the tree line coming over this mountain riding and to see the lightning striking below you is kind of a, a weird concept um and just being in this this lightning storm and just this feeling of having to get through it and get out of it um that was pretty powerful to have this big vista and just how strong nature is and then I guess down here, one winter on the Elkhorn, we had this major storm that was, I don't know that there was any lightning that went through it, but we got like 11 inches in one storm, which wow. we talked about rainfall before. That's just, you know, astronomical. Everything flooded. It was amazing, especially for a winter storm. That's very strange. But we were wrangling the horses in in the morning before we fully realized that we definitely weren't going to be riding that day. Um, and I was up on top of a mountain and on this horse who's, a little quirky, but one of my favorite all-time horses and in this raincoat and the wind caught it and just flapping everywhere. And I was convinced he was just going to run off and, and dump me. And he held it together and I held it together and we got down off the mountain. And just that rush of, you know, being in a team with an animal like that and, and also being in a little bit of a scary situation and then having it pass and be okay. Um, those are kind of the two that when I picture big outdoor moments, those are kind of the two big ones for me. Yeah. Those are good ones. <laughs> Animals and, and crazy lightning storms that, yes. that can all yeah. be intense. Um, do you have a favorite location in the West? That's so hard. Um, I guess, I guess this is a, probably a little bit cheating, but the two Elkhorns are always going to have my heart a little bit. The one down here, um, you know, where we first came out and kind of first experienced ranch life and riding in a big, you know, open country. Um, it's pretty magical. And then the one in Montana experiencing, and I'd never been to Montana before going out in college. Um, and so being out there and especially those pivotal, you know, 18 to 22 years of figuring out who you are, what you like on your own, um, you know, really working for someone else for the first time. Um, that's a, a pretty special place and some spectacular country in both places. Very cool. Um, 
this is a good one. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Hmm. Uh, maybe I'll credit my mother with that one. And we were talking about something in college and everybody was so smart. And I was talking about that I'd spoken up about something in class, I think. And she kind of said something about maybe not having the smartest thing to say, but I was at least brave about it or something. And she sort of turned it around on, um, if you can't be brilliant, at least be brave. And it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, I don't, I think she was half joking. It wasn't really intended to be huge advice, but I think that's kind of a true statement that even if you don't think you're going to be the best at something, um, if you're brave about it and you try and you, you go at it, there's so many doors that can open up. Yeah. Taking action. You know, it's, yeah. it's like we were talking about, it's real easy to have these theories about things, but it, none of it matters until you take action. And, um, yeah. I, I agree. I, I think, I think that's, that is the key to life being brave, taking action. Um, yeah. so next, the last question is, um, the people who listen to this podcast, they, they love the American West in many different ways, whether they're in the conservation world or the ranching world or athletics or art. So it's a wide variety, but the common theme is they all love this area. And so if you could make a request or offer some advice or some words of wisdom to the people who listen to this podcast, what would, what would it be? I think it'd be keep talking to one another that no matter what end of the spectrum you're on, um, you know, hunter, rancher, environmentalist, someone who just loves the outdoors, um, someone who doesn't know what the heck everybody's so angry about, <laughs> whatever you are, whatever you do, if you keep talking to everybody, you're going to find the common ground. You're also going to know people as people and not just your enemy um, or the boogeyman or, you know, whatever combination of things. And I think, you know, like we talked about before, that the alliance is really proof of where if you if you keep talking, if you keep meeting on the land, if you keep thinking about the landscape in a, a broad concept and um, get a little bit outside of your box um, and keep talking to people, that's, I think, really the the solution to a lot of problems. Yeah, you guys have proven it. Um, I think you're a, you're a case study in that. So that's great advice. How can people learn more about you learn more about the alliance um, and i'll put links to everything but what's the best way sure. to connect with you um i think checking out the alliance website which is altarvalleyconservation.org um would be a great place to start it's got a lot of history of how the alliance came to be some of the stuff we're currently working on um a really neat new interactive um maps page that connects to ArcGIS. We've got someone working with us now who's really sharp on all this drone stuff and mapping. and um, So that's really exciting. Um, and then my Instagram is sehking. Um, and so that's kind of the what's going on with the ranch and the landscape out here. Um, so yeah, I think those are probably the, the two good ways. Cool. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. You guys are doing great work, and I'm excited to continue to watch your, your progress over the years. But thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks for having me, and thanks for sharing what you're doing and seeing throughout the West. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, you can go crazy. There are a lot of books. 
And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainimperial.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.